Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Corinthians chapter 6, and if you're a guest this morning, I just want to let you know this is not the normal type of sermon that I preach at Emmanuel. Normally I preach expositorily through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, but um, as I kind of announced last week, uh, this is a special Sunday that we're going to address a topic that we as a church need to address, and it's something that we as the elders believe uh, we as a church need to go on a trajectory to be obedient to what the Lord is calling us to do. So with that being said, um, let's just dive right in this morning. Could June 29th be the big day? June 29th. June is the last month that the Supreme Court is in session this term, and they usually wait until the very last Monday of their session to announce their landmark decisions. Almost all the landmark decisions that have come down from the Supreme Court have happened during that time. And so June 29th could be the day that the Supreme Court makes a decision making gay marriage legal in the United States. Right now there are 38 states where gay marriage is legal. No one really knows what the court is going to rule, what the court's going to decide. But it's no secret that we live in a culture that is quickly, not slowly, but quickly, going against biblical Christianity. And we as a church have got to make some decisions about how we're going to actually practice our biblical beliefs. All over the country right now, pastors are being asked to perform same-sex weddings. Church secretaries are getting calls asking to use their sanctuaries for same-sex weddings. Churches are being contacted and sued because employees are being held to a code of sexual conduct, and when they break that and get fired, they're suing because of discrimination. There could be a day when we're threatened with the loss of our tax-exempt status. We don't know. Chai Feldblum, I don't know if you know who Chai Feldblum is, she is the commissioner of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She was appointed by President Obama. And back in 2006, before she was appointed as the commissioner, she wrote a paper for the Georgetown Law Review. And this is what she said. In that article as well as being interviewed by the Weekly Standard. Here's her words, quote, I'm having a hard time coming up with any case in which religious liberty should win. Sexual liberty should win in most cases. There can be a conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty, but in almost all cases the sexual liberty should win because that's the only way the dignity of gay people can be affirmed in any realistic manner. She's arguing as the head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that in almost all cases, sexual liberty wins over religious liberty. And that's becoming the culture in which we live. So the question that we've got to ask is how do we as a church prepare for whatever ruling comes down from 
the Supreme Court or whatever the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission becomes down and mandates upon us, or any other government institution, how are we going to make some difficult choices as a church to be proactive, to be prepared, and what steps do we need to take? Our own Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission along with the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in which I'm getting my doctorate, along with the Gospel Coalition, all these entities that we're heavily involved with, they've recommended that churches begin to make steps to help prepare themselves for what's coming. And they've recommended an organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom. The Alliance Defending Freedom is a conservative Christian organization that provides legal counsel to churches and to Christian organizations and how they can protect religious liberty. They have over 2,400 highly trained lawyers in all 50 states. They've won 80% of their cases, including 38 Supreme Court cases. And they've given churches kind of a template of a step-by-step things that churches really need to do in order to protect themselves in, in, in ways regarding religious liberty. And so we as elders have looked at this, we've studied it, we've looked at, at a lot of things that we need to do, and so we're coming to you today to just introduce this, the steps that we need to take as a church to be prepared, to be proactive, to help us to be able to truly practice biblical Christianity. And so, as I said last week, I don't want to get bogged down in all the details. I don't want to get bogged down in the nitty-gritty. We're going to have some town hall meetings to to, to hash these things out. But for this morning, I want to do two big things. Number one, as we do every, every time I stand up here, we've got to set a biblical and a theological foundation for why we're doing what we're doing. Why are we doing this, theologically, biblically? And then secondly, what are the steps that need to be taken? What steps do we as a church need to take? But before we dive into the text, I want to address an historical issue that some of you may not be aware of. We don't wear the label Baptist, you know, we're not like proud Baptist, you know, we're, we are a Baptist church, but I want you to know something about Baptist history. If you trace Baptist history going all the way back to Europe, Baptists have been some of the key spokespeople for religious freedom. They were persecuted in England, they went to Holland, they were persecuted in Holland, they went back to England, they were persecuted in England, they came to America, they were persecuted in America. And I don't know if you know about the history behind the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment and how all that came to be historically. You probably won't hear about this in your, in your history books today. James Madison was basically the architect of the Bill of Rights. He was the one that basically came up with the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, and really pushed that to go through the Continental Congress to get the Constitution that we have today. But here's the issue. In Virginia and surrounding states, the wording in the Constitution was not strong enough for religious freedom. So a Baptist pastor named John Leland began putting pressure on James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and basically said, guys, if you don't put religious freedom in the Constitution, you're not going to get the votes to pass the Constitution because us Baptists aren't going to vote for it if religious liberty is not in the Constitution. So there was a meeting between a Baptist pastor, John Leland, and James Madison in James Madison's home. And they met for over two hours. And what came out of that was the First Amendment. So you can thank a Baptist pastor for sitting down with the politician to help come up with what our First Amendment is. And eventually, the Bill of Rights was passed. 
So we as Baptists have had a history in religious liberty. Let me just remind you, I hardly ever do this, but let me just remind you in case there's kids in the audience that have never heard this before. We have a constitution. And there's a First Amendment to that constitution. Here it is. Let me just give you what the First Amendment says. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the making of any law respecting an establishment of religion, impeding the free exercise of religion, abridging the freedom of speech, infringing on the freedom of the press, interfering with the right to peaceably assemble, or prohibiting the petitioning for a governmental redress of grievances. Did you, did you see that? Right now, in our Constitution, the government cannot impede. What does the word impede mean? Stop, interfere with the free exercise of our religion. In practice, our Constitution allows us to, to, to exercise freedom of religion, but the problem with our culture is, here's what they're saying. You're free to practice your religion as long as it matches up with what we think it should be. That's not freedom of religion. It doesn't happen that way. And so here's the bottom line for Emmanuel. Regardless of what a political party says, regardless of what the Supreme Court says, regardless of what a politician says, regardless of what media and culture, whatever those things say, that's not the issue for Emmanuel. The issue for us is what does the inerrant holy word of God say and how will we obey that? This is our ultimate authority as a church. So this sermon is not about gay marriage. So if you came in here thinking he's going to talk about gay marriage, this is not a sermon about gay marriage. It's something completely bigger than that. This message is really about religious liberty and how we as a church can take steps to be the church that God has called us to be. We have to stay true to our convictions as a church and be the church that God has called us to be and to actually practice the biblical Christianity that we believe God has told us to. So let's look in our Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Oftentimes this passage of Scripture is used to talk about marriage, how a non-Christian and a Christian should not enter into the covenant of marriage, and that is absolutely true. But this passage of Scripture addresses something bigger. It's the biblical doctrine of what we call separation or holiness. It's a doctrine we don't talk about a lot in our culture these days. So let's read together 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then into chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul gives two commands in this passage of Scripture that are really bookends. In chapter 6, verse 14, he gives the first command. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
And then to bookend it in chapter 7, verse 1, he gives the, the second command. Cleanse yourselves from every defilement. Be, be holy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to try to unpack for you what this means and what this does not mean. Because when you talk about being unequally yoked, there's a lot of confusion. What's Paul meaning when he says don't be unequally yoked? Well, let me first tell you what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that we should never have friendships with lost people. It doesn't mean that we should never have relationships or work associates or, or, or be friends or to befriend people that have different lifestyles than us, people that are different from us. It doesn't say that we should abandon the Great Commission and we should no longer witness and we should kind of hunker down in our, in our bunker mentality and, and kind of hope the culture goes away and that we should never be salt and life, we should never engage culture. It, it doesn't mean that. Some of you have friends, some of you have family members, some of you have work associates, you have people in your life that are different, biblically, theologically, lifestyle. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be friends with them, that you can't be nice to them, that you have to treat them as second-class citizens, or that you somehow have to, to um, you know, be, be mean or to be violent even, or to be discriminatory. That's, that's not what we're saying. Because Paul says if that were to happen, you'd have to leave the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-10. Paul says, I wrote to you, this is what he wrote in his, his previous letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. You see what he's saying? If I'm telling you not to hang out with any sinners, you'd have to go out of the world because it's impossible. They're all around you. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is where the, the issue comes if a person claims to be a christian bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a person so what does it mean to be unequally yoked paul gives five illustrations here five rhetorical questions or five ways that he kind of unpacks this and you can kind of see the parallelism as you're looking through the scriptures because he starts out for what and he uses a word, partnership, fellowship, accord, compact, contract. Does righteousness or a Christian have with a non-Christian? And he gives five of these. And so let's, let's look at what he says. Number one, this is in verse 14. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Now, it's, it's key that he uses words like partnership, contract, fellowship. These are deep words that mean more than just a friendship, more than just a, an association. These are where you, you um, mesh life together in very serious ways. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? And this is where it all starts. It starts with righteousness. We as Christians are called to be righteous. And he says, what partnership do we have with lawlessness? And you have to ask the question, well, why does he start with lawlessness? What is lawlessness lawlessness is a flagrant disregard for god's truth it's 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 basically saying god you've given me your law god you've given me your word god you've given me your standard and i'm going to totally disobey that and rebel against that and go my own way i'm going to be lawless i'm going to flagrantly defy what you have said is right because God has the sovereign right to dictate what is right and wrong. God has the sovereign right to tell us how to live, what to believe. And lawlessness says, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to obey my own law. And that's exactly what's going on in our culture. 
lawlessness. I'm not talking about people just breaking the law. That's happening all the time. But we live in a culture where people say, there's a law of God. There's a word of God. There's a standard of holiness. There, 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 there's a Bible. Come on. I'm going to live my own way. 1 John 3, 4 says this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, makes a practice of sinning, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin at its very core is saying, I'm going to disregard what God's law, God's word, God's standard says, and I'm going to live my own way. Baronel Stutzman. Maybe you've heard of Baronel Stutzman. She is a florist in Richland, Washington. And she's had a very good relationship with a guy named Rob Ingersoll. And she would do a lot of um, floral arrangements for Rob. She would do different um, things for him. They had a great friendship. She was very nice to him. But one day he came in and says, I need you to do flowers for my wedding. And then he goes on to explain that he's getting married to another man. And because of her Christian convictions, she said, no, I can't do the flowers for your wedding because it goes against my Christian principles to, to be involved in a gay marriage. And so he said, I understand your convictions. He hugged her. They left on good terms. He goes back and tells his partner, who goes on a tirade on Facebook and basically just goes off. And what happened later was Washington State's Attorney General Bob Ferguson wanted to make an example of Stutzman. So what he did was he filed a consumer protection lawsuit against her, charging her with illegally discriminating against Rob on the basis of his sexual orientation. And what was unusual was Rob and his partner, neither one had filed a suit against her. Well, the attorney general went around the state of Washington to make a big deal of this. He wanted to make a big, huge thing about this. And basically, now they filed suit against her, and the case is still pending. But she has suffered for taking a stand. Now, think about this for a moment. She was friendly. She was nice. She had done all types of things for him. She was not rude. But when it came to being unequally yoked... When it came for her to break her conscience, to, to make a decision where her business would be doing something that violated her conscience, she said, I've got to draw the line. I've got to say no. She understood the scripture that says, what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? That's the first thing Paul says. Second, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Second half of verse 14, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And the answer is none. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been rescued from darkness. Has not the Bible told us that? We've been rescued. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Speaking of Jesus, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been delivered from darkness. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we as Christians have been called out of darkness, and we now live in the light. And so Paul says, what fellowship does, do we have with darkness anymore? How does Paul describe darkness in other places in the Bible? In Romans 13, 12 through 13, Paul says this, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Let's cast off the works of darkness. 
Ephesians chapter 5, 5 through 8. For you may be sure of this, Paul writes, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do not be partners with children of darkness. Do not have fellowship. Now again, it doesn't mean don't be their friend. It doesn't mean that don't witness to them. But it's talking about taking that step where you're going to enter into a contract or you're going to enter into a binding relationship or you're going to go something past what convicts uh, goes against your conscience and you're going to be into an alliance with them. Paul's saying don't do that. Don't mix light with darkness. John and Elaine Huguenin, they had a photography business in New Mexico, a young couple. Uh, They started to do photography, and it got really popular, and and a lot of people were asking them to do weddings. And one day, they received an email. They received an email from a lesbian couple asking if they did a same-sex wedding ceremony. And here's the answer that she gave back in an email. As a company, we photograph traditional weddings, engagements, seniors, and several other things, such as political photographs and singers' portfolios. Thank you for your interest. Okay, two months passed. They never heard anything. After two months, she received another email asking for clarification. Let me hear you correctly. Are you saying that you don't do same-sex weddings? Yes. Well, a few weeks later, the New Mexico Department of Human Rights contacted her saying that a complaint had been filed against her for violating the state's anti-discrimination laws ordered this young couple to pay $7,000 in attorney's fees, and now they've gone out of business. And they've received criticism all over the state, hate mail, um, social media has attacked them, for them just making a decision to take a stand on what they believe is biblical Christianity. They're paying the price for standing strong and not violating their conscience as private citizens with the private business. Number three, what accord or what harmony, or what agreement does Christ have with Satan? Now, verse 15 says, what accord does Christ have with Belial? You may think, what is Belial? Belial is a Hebrew word that means worthless or wicked. It was used during the period between the New Testament and the Old Testament by the Jewish rabbis. It would be very similar to what we would call Satan as Lucifer. It was kind of a code name for Satan, Belial. What partnership does Christ have with Satan? And what do we know about Satan? John 8, 44. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here, and he says, You're the father of the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 John 3, 7-8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What partnership do Christians have with the things of the devil? Is really what Paul's saying. Ungodly things. Last fall, the Houston Five made headlines. The Houston Five. These were five pastors who got in trouble because they took a stand on biblical truth. Last summer, the city of Houston passed an ordinance, an anti-discrimination ordinance that would make public restrooms available for both genders and all that kind of stuff. And 82% of the city of Houston did not agree with it. 
And they decided to have a petition to overturn the city's ordinances. And some of these pastors decided to say, you know what, I'm going to address this from my pulpit. So from the pulpit, they addressed biblical ethics. They addressed the bill. They addressed gender issues. And what happened was the city attorney served a subpoena against these five pastors and asked for their sermons to be given over to the government to see if there had been anything in there that would have spoken against the, the, the mayor of Houston. Now, the mayor went on Twitter and said this, if five pastors use pulpits for politics, the sermons are fair game. Now, personally, I wouldn't have a problem giving up my sermon. Why? I'm on the Internet. I'm standing up publicly here. I write a newspaper article. I've got a blog. We're all over the place. I don't have anything to hide. And besides that, maybe if she read that, she'd hear the gospel and get saved. I don't know. But here's the issue. Regardless of how you believe about whether the thing is, is that a a city is trying to stifle what a pastor can say from his pulpit and to come down and say, no, you can't say that or we're going to penalize you if you say things from the pulpit. So can you back down on what the Bible teaches just because a city comes and says you can't say that anymore? Fourth, what portion or partnership or fellowship do believers have with unbelievers? That's the second half of verse 15. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And again, don't take this too far. It doesn't mean you can't have friends. It doesn't mean you don't have relationships. It doesn't mean that you don't have work associates. Or, uh, that's not what it's saying, because you'd have to go out of the world to not hang around any lost per- person. It's saying partnership, like a marriage or a contract or a business alliance or, or anything where it's a deep, deep relationship where it's going to cause you to, to, to compromise your principles. That's what Paul's saying here. Donald and Evelyn Knapp are ordained ministers and they have the Hitching Post Wedding Chapel in Idaho. And they perform weddings at their Hitching Post. And in the city of Idaho, where they're from, back in 2013, uh, officials instituted a sexual orientation non-discrimination ordinance. And they were told, you've got to abide by this. And so once the, the, the ordinance passed, uh, people began coming and asking for them to perform gay weddings at the Hitching Post Chapel. And so they said, no, we're not going to do that. Well, they were threatened with up to 180 days in jail and $1,000 a fine every day that they disobeyed it if they were not going to do that. And so what happened was they began to contact the Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Alliance Defending Freedom put an injunction in and put a... um, a temporary restraining order to stop the city from doing the, following through on its threats, and so the city soon backed down upon that. But here's what the city was doing. The city was going to tell a pastor who he can and cannot marry and who he can and cannot have in his private hitching post chapel. And so the Naps are in the heat of this battle right now, understanding what this scripture means about does a, does a believer have a portion with an unbeliever? Number five. What agreement or contract or fellowship does the temple of God have with idols? Verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer is nothing. Now, let me ask you a question. What was the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? The temple in the Old Testament was the visible, physical structure where God's glory and God's holiness dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant to display to the nations and to display to the nation of Israel who he was. The Bible says we as the church now are the temple of God. 
And so just as in the Old Testament, the temple of God was to display his holiness and his glory to the nations, we as a church are to display his holiness and his glory to the nations. We are the place where God resides. We're the place where God lives. And so we're to be holy. We're to be a holy temple. Ephesians 2, 19-22, Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, this whole temple, being joined together, grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built together for the Holy Spirit to live in us as the temple. 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, Paul says, you're the temple. Right there, he says, you're the temple. We are the temple. And then he goes on to quote, in in verses 16 and 17 and 18, he goes to quote a bunch of Old Testament passages. He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Leviticus. He quotes from 2 Samuel. He quotes from Ezekiel. He, he, He basically strings together a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament. And here's his point. As the temple, you have an identity. Your identity is you are the people of God, therefore be separate, be distinct, therefore come out from them. Notice what he says. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people, therefore go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. This is biblical separation. Again, not to leave the world, not to become hermits, not to become Amish or all these weird things, but to live in such a way that you are distinctly different as a Christian individual and as a Christian church where we're not going to make alliances, we're not going to make contracts, we're not going to make partnerships, we're not going to cross the line on biblical truth, we're going to hold fast to who we are as the church, as the temple of the living God. We're going to be separate, we're going to be distinct. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul rounds it out and says, therefore, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. It's in a Greek tense that means this needs to be done with urgency, this needs to be done with quickness, This needs to be done with intensity. Cleanse yourselves now of everything, every defilement, everything that pollutes, bringing holiness to completion out of what? The fear of God. That's ultimately the issue as a church, right? The fear of God. Here's the question. As I was praying in my quiet time this morning, the question I kept asking, God, do we fear you or are we going to fear man? Do we fear you? Because who are we going to stand before on the day of judgment? Are we going to stand before men or before God? We're going to stand before God on the day of judgment. Who do we fear? Robert and Cynthia Gifford own a beautiful farm in upstate New York. It's a private farm. And from time to time, they open up their farm to allow people to come on. And they, they do corn mazes. They do pumpkin, like pumpkin patches. And sometimes in their barn, they will have weddings. And so one day, a lesbian couple came and said, we'd like to use your barn for a wedding. And they said, you can use our facilities for pumpkin patch. We're not discriminating there. If you want to use the corn maze, that's fine. If you want to bring um, your lesbian friends and, and have a, an excursion, that's fine. As a matter of fact, they even hired um, um, some gay people to work for them. So they weren't discriminatory as far as anything. But they said, when it comes to a wedding, we're not going to allow you to use our barn, our private barn, for a gay wedding. They drew the line. Well, the two lesbians filed a complaint with the New York State Division of Human Rights 
The judge found the Giffords guilty of discrimination, fined them $13,000, told them they would be fined if they ever said no again to a same-sex wedding, and judge ordered them to go through sensitivity training to be more sensitive to the needs of others. And so they're weighing options right now on what they should be doing. Catholic Fontbonne Academy in Massachusetts. It's a Catholic school. They put an ad in for a director of food services. And so they hired a man, and he went to fill out his paperwork, and it came to um, emergency contact, and he named his husband. And it came back to the administrators of the Catholic school and said, now wait a minute, we can't we, I know we hired you, but we can't keep you on as a staff person because it violates our charter as a Catholic school and what we believe. And so they rescinded his employment. He sued them for discrimination. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, there's a Christian preschool called Hope Christian School. Two gay men decided to bring their child to enroll And once the school found out that they were gay and it went against their beliefs as a Christian school, they said, you know, we can't enroll your child. They were sued for discrimination. And I could go on and on and share with you a lot of different issues of what's happening from around the country to individual Christians, to pastors, to business people, to florists, to photographers, to bakers. You guys have read the news. You know about all that. So here's the issue. In light of this biblical call to be holy and to hold fast to God's word we as a church need to take appropriate steps to do three things we need to clearly define these are all basically the same thing define articulate and clarify what we believe and where we stand on key cultural issues that will be under attack by our government and the society at large We all intuitively know what we believe, I think. If we were to poll everybody in the church, I I bet you most of us would be on the same page. But in a court of law, it's not going to hold up what we all intuitively believe. We as a church have got to make some statements, some policies, some procedures on what we actually believe and how we're going to operate. So we're asking you to take a huge step as a church. We have a statement of faith. It's on your seat. It's the Baptist faith and message. It does address these issues, but not as comprehensively as we as the elders would like them to answer these questions. We have an employee code of conduct that we use when we hire employees, but it's not as explicit as we'd like it to be, so there needs to be some changes there. We have issues on church membership on how we receive and and not receive members and terminate members, and so what we're asking you to do is to be highly involved in this process. This is not just an elders thing that we're mandating down to you. This is something that where you as a church have got to own it. You've got to be on board with it. You've got to step up to the plate and say, we want to be part of this process. So what I want us to do is I want to clarify or or talk about, and not get into the nitty-gritty again. I'm just going to give an overview here. What are the four steps we've got to take? What do we've got to actually do as a church to address some of these issues? Number one, Statement of faith and church covenant. Our statement of faith is the Baptist faith and message 2000. It it does address sanctity of life. It does address sexual ethics, but it's very limited. So our statement of faith, the way it is right now, is fairly limited on current cultural issues, especially related to gender and human sexuality. 
So one of the things that we need to do is we need to adopt a statement. And we're in the process of crafting this statement on marriage, gender, and human sexuality. We get that next slide up there. Statement on marriage, gender, and sexuality. We as a church have got to vote on this statement. We've got to clearly be in agreement on this statement. What do we as a church believe about marriage, gender, and sexuality? Okay, number two under this, statement on final authority. If for some reason we are sued or we are going to go to court, do all of us go to court? All two, three hundred of us go to court? Or is there a body that the church is authorizing to be the statement, of final, the, the statement on final authority? Who has the final authority in this church to represent us in the court of law? We believe that has to be the elders that will be representing this church in a court of law. Church covenant. What does our church covenant say about these issues and what we're doing with the church covenant? So, so the big ticket number one is church covenant, statement of faith, our theological issues, number one. Number two, religious employment. Right now, we do have an employee manual that every person that's hired by a manual has to sign. And it does list out a code of ethics, a code of conduct, and we have the right to, to fire a person if they don't abide by a certain code of conduct. But we feel like we need to expand that to make it more explicit, to more clear, to more clearly defined. Number three, this is a big one, facility use agreement. This is a nice big building that a lot of people in our community want to use. Who will we allow to use our building? And wedding policies and procedures. What will be our wedding policies and procedures? We have those in place right now. But the question becomes how explicit and how clear is it? And then number four, membership policy. Our Constitution does talk about how we receive and how we terminate members. But do we need to have a more comprehensive procedure where members have to agree to our statement of faith a little bit more officially, more officially to our church covenant, understanding our church discipline policy, understanding and embracing our statement on gender, human, gender, uh, statement on marriage, gender, and human sexuality. So, so let me just ask you as a church to think in your mind, we need to wrestle through if these following scenarios happen. This could happen tomorrow in a manual. These scenarios. What do we do if a gay couple calls up the church and says, we want to use your sanctuary for a gay wedding? What do we do? What do we do if they call up and say, Pastor Sean, we want you to perform a gay marriage? What do we do? Do we just say no? And they sue us and we don't have any backing? What happens if we hire an employee? And after time, they violate biblical code of conduct. They violate a code of ethics. And we go back to them and say, we have to fire you because you have acted in, not in accord with the scriptures. Do we have the right to hold them accountable without being sued because we've held them to biblical ethics? What do we do? If someone goes to the membership class at Emmanuel, signs on the dotted line, says we're becoming an official member of Emmanuel. And we're here, and we're part of Emmanuel, and we're, we're teaching Sunday school, and we're involved in And all of a sudden, they begin to have different views or different practices on sexual ethics and things that we disagree with as a church. Do we have the right to terminate them? Do we have the right to discipline them? Do we have the right to, to tell them not to do that for fear that they might come back and retaliate? As a pastor, do I not share from the pulpit? Do I just kind of skip over passages of Scripture for fear that, that I, I, I'm going to be silenced or put in jail? What, what do we do as a church? 
What's the legal fallout? I mean, this is some big stuff. How are we going to operate going forward as a church? There's two big issues. One is theological. Theologically, where are we as a church? Number two, procedurally, where are we? I think the theology is pretty, I would say, and this is my opinion, it's probably easier to figure out. Procedurally is where it's going to be hard. How, how do we actually procedurally, legally, policies, statements, how do we actually move forward as a church? And it can't just be the elders doing these things. I mean, we're working on these documents. We're working on these policies and procedures. But the last thing we want is for you as a church to say, okay, elders, we trust you. Go forward with it. You've got to own this because this means when you come to Emmanuel Baptist Church and you say, I'm a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church and this is what we stand for as Emmanuel Baptist Church and this is what our pastors believe and this is what we believe about marriage and human sexuality and sanctity of life. If you're going to be a part of this church, you've got to own it and say, yes, we agree. It's not just Pastor Sean who believes that. It's not just the elders who believe that. But we all believe this, and this is our statement. This is a manual statement. It's not the elder statement. It's not Pastor Sean's statement. It's a manual statement. So what can you do now? Let me give you four things you can do now. Number one, pray for us as elders and pray for our church that we would be wise and discerning. We've got to be wise and discerning. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's the number one thing you can do right now is pray. Pray for me. Pray for the other elders. Pray for our church. Pray that we would have wisdom. Pray that we would have discernment. Pray that we would do things the right way, the right timing, and and the right attitude, that everything that we do about this would be glorifying to God. So pray. Number two, commit to be engaged in this process. This is one of the privileges of church membership. This is where you actually get to say something. This is where you get to give us your opinion. This is where you get to stand up and say, no, wait a minute, have you thought about this? Or what about this? Or, or This is the privilege of church membership or to be committed in the process. This is a church-wide process. This is where we all get together in town hall meetings and we hash these things out, and it doesn't just say, okay, here's what the elders are deciding. We've mandated it down. Go for it. Trust us. Yes, I know you trust us. And and yes, we do a lot of things behind the scene, but this is something that the entire body's got to be a part of. So commit to be engaged in the process. Number three, be aware of what's going on in our nation right now in regards to religious freedom. Be aware. How can you be aware? Well, obviously you can read the news, but one of the the best places is the Alliance Defending Freedom, that that organization that I talked about earlier. And I think the website will be up there. It's www.alliancedefendingfreedom.org. Is it up there? It should be. It was before the service. Well, you can get a copy of this transcript after. It's just, just Google Alliance Defending Freedom. They give you a lot of different things that are going on. And then number four, pray, number four, pray for the Supreme Court justices over the next four weeks as they deliberate and make hard decisions on this landmark issue. Pray for our Supreme Court. So pray for us as elders in the church. Commit to be engaged be aware of what's going on in our country, and then pray specifically. They're going to make their judgment on, probably on June 29th is the day it's going to come down. And again, we don't know what they're going to say. But whatever they do is going to have ripples and ramifications for us 
as individual Christians and as a church body. And I'm reminded as I bring this to a close of Esther. Remember what it was said of Esther? God raised her up for such a time as this. We don't have a choice, church, what time we live in. God has raised us up for a time as this, and so we've got to be a church that says, regardless of what the culture does, we need to be prepared, we need to be ready, and most of all, we need to be holy and stick to our guns is what God has called us to do to be the body of Christ that glorifies him. So will we be the display people that we've been talking about all the past few months in Deuteronomy who hold fast to biblical truth in the coming days? Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. This sermon's probably engendered more questions than maybe answers, and I understand that, and there's a lot to digest. And so I would just spend some time in prayer. If you have questions, you can come talk to me after the service or one of our elders. Um, again, this is more of an overview, but um, and it's a lot to lay before you as a church family, but... We, we needed to introduce it some way. So just spend some time in prayer and just ask God to search your heart this morning for how you can be involved in this process. Praying for our nation, praying for your family, praying for the gospel to go forth in power, however God would lead you. And then we'll take our Lord's Supper together as a church family. I want to be a people who hold fast to your word. And Lord, I know that that's a scary place to be in our culture because the culture is going to call us all types of names unfairly. They will label us. And Father, there's fear for the kind of nation our children and grandchildren will be growing up in. But Lord, I look back in history and it's when the church was silent and when the church was weak and when the church acted like a jellyfish that things went bad for a nation. So Father, you're calling this church for such a time as this to stand upon the solid rock of the scriptures, to stand upon the unchanging truth of your word, to make the unpopular decision to be unpopular for the glory of God. And Lord, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of hesitation, there's a lot of doubt in that. And it would be very easy for the congregation, Lord, this morning to say, that's Pastor Sean's job to do that, to be our spokesperson. And I take that gladly, Lord, but it has to be all of us. We have to all make the commitment to stand strong on truth. So Father, would you begin to work in our hearts to show us how we can pray? Show us how we can be engaged. Show us how we can be involved. Lord, this is not the time to sit on the sidelines. This is the time to be involved, to pray for revival, to pray for our nation, to pray for the gospel to go forth in power, to pray for righteousness to uphold our nation. Lord, let us stand in the gap as a church for a nation that's lost its way, a nation that's lawless. Help us as a church to be prepared to whatever we, steps we need to take to be prepared to do what you've called us to do so that we can be the church faithful to you, not the church faithful to the culture, not the church faithful even to the government, but the church faithful to you, Lord. You're our ultimate authority. And we thank you for the grace and strength that you provide in these days ahead. We know that your Holy Spirit gives us power, and so we trust in him. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.